This podcast is being brought to you by our friends at Rib It Up, the finest barbecue around. Find them on the web at ribitup.com. Tell me what you were just saying about these brownies and the eggs. What were you, tell me, say the whole little thing again. So the secret to a moist brownie is the number of eggs mm-hmm. that you put in the brownie. So there's a lot of butter in these brownies. There's a lot of really good chocolate, but there's half a dozen eggs in one batch of brownies. And the first time I made these, I thought there was a typo. On the recipe, I was like six brown, six eggs, right, in one batch of brownies. But that is the secret. These, first of all, Beth brought brownies, and they are divine, absolutely divine. So now, moving forward, if anybody comes on the show and you have, and you bake, she has set the bar so incredibly high. Now. Beth Shelburne, October 8th makes you what sign? Libra. You're a Libra. Okay. Birmingham Wiki says that Beth Shelburne, born October 8th, is an anchor and reporter for WBRC6. Needs to be updated. Yeah, not anymore. (laughs) Shelburne was the second child and only daughter born to Kingman Cody Jr. and Kathy Shelburne. She was grew up in Homewood. First experience in broadcasting was hosting Kids World 13 at age 11. I remember Kids World 13. That was you. That was me. She graduated from Homewood High School in 92, then attended Auburn University. During that time and after she spent some time in New York City, one of the things she did there was intern in the executive producer's office at The Late Show with David Letterman. She graduated from Auburn with a BA in mass communication and journalism in 96. Began her broadcasting career as a news producer at WVTM and has a long and distinguished career. On April 2nd, 2018, Shelburne had a heart attack while grocery shopping, but didn't recognize the symptoms correctly and thought it was some form of an anxiety attack. She completed her shopping, (laughs) drove herself home, where the symptoms subsided the next morning after doing an internet search for heart attack versus panic attack. She had her husband take her to the emergency room where they confirmed you had a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And is that when you retired from news? I went on medical leave for five months. Okay. And I came back for a little under a year off the air. Okay. Um, But that is when I decided I was no longer going to be working as an on-air news person. I kind of... You know, the the news, of course, kind of covered what was going on. And everybody was praying for you. Thank you. Beth, tell me a joke. 
Okay. Um, just because I'm from here, I feel like if you're from here, you can make fun of it here, right? Absolutely. I resent it when somebody from New York tells an Alabama joke, mm-hmm. but, but mm-hmm. we're allowed to tell them. Absolutely. Um, Expected to. So what do Alabama rednecks say when they break up? What? Let's just be cousins. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a good one. Good one. Good one. Good one. Good one. I so love we're that allowed one. to tell that? I, that's right. That's but right. Folks that are not from Alabama, no. Mm, that's not your joke not. to tell. So back to your career mm-hmm. as a newscaster. All right. What you don't know is that you were one of my TV crushes, right? Yeah, like <laughs> I have a, I have a, I mean, the the list is short and distinguished. Right now, right now, my girlfriend is Harmony Mendoza. Of course. Yeah, she's, yeah. But um, she's one of my TV girlfriends too. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, yeah, um, who, oh, um, um, oh my God, Eunice Elliott. Mm-hmm. That was my TV girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I have, you know, everybody got their little TV girlfriend crushes. You you watch the show just to make sure they dress cute and everything. So you were one of my TV crushes. Well, thank you. Then I'm not mad about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> then we got to be Twitter friends, right? And that's where. Like, I felt like I really got to, I feel like I know you. Mm -hmm. But when I walked in here and gave her a hug, that was the first time I've ever seen her in real life. That's right. Isn't that funny? But I mean, we we go back and forth and Mm -hmm. check on each other and all kinds of stuff. You like my stuff. I like your stuff. Which gets us to why um, I wanted you here even though you're my TV crush. But it's because I'm such a fan of your work as it relates to prisons and the prison population and uh, social justice. And just really quickly, tell me how you got there from you know, when you left TV and how did you land there? You know, what brought that on? Well, I had always covered crime working for local TV stations, not just in Birmingham, but I also worked in California, New England, um, Mississippi, Florida. Um, When I moved back to Birmingham in 2010, I was still covering crime. Mm. We have a lot of it here, unfortunately. unfortunately. But in 2012, I started reporting on problems at the women's prison in Alabama, Tutwiler Prison for Women in Mm -hmm. Wetumpka. And that sort of started this whole journey of trying to crack open what is going on inside, not just our prisons, but our whole criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a mess. Our prison system in Alabama especially is just, terrible. It's been terrible for a long time. Um, We're being sued by the federal government. But I started 
filing regular stories at Fox 6, and I mm-hmm. kind of became the, the prison reporter yeah. in Alabama. And the deeper I got un- into it, the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And it just evolved into some deeply personal feelings that I wanted to give myself space to um, really flesh out. And so I knew that I wanted to write opinion pieces, and you Mm -hmm. can't really do that working for traditional media as a regular reporter. So um, I stayed at Fox 6 after my heart attack for about nine or ten months, I think, and then um, an opportunity came my way to work as an investigative reporter for the Campaign for Smart Justice, which is part of ACLU of Alabama. And it's focused on um, really highlighting and amplifying the racial disparities in our criminal justice system and the over-incarceration in our country. And so those were two things that I really cared deeply about. It was a great way for me to um, step out of the career that I'd been in for 20 years and that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm working still for Smart Justice, but I'm also pursuing other independent projects that are all criminal justice related. And time out right there. That brings us to where you and I often disconnect, right? And I was like, hold on. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore because I wanted to save it all for right here, right now. Okay. Now, it goes without saying, I've said a million times, I'm a huge fan, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I support your work. And we'll talk about that work specifically in depth in a minute. But here's where, what I don't understand, right? I'm a, you know, I'm a big proponent of new prisons mm-hmm. because I feel like the system you know, the system isn't going to be fixed anytime soon. So while we work on fixing that system, I want my friends and family that I know who are incarcerated and all our friends and families who are incarcerated, I want them up off the floor. I mm-hmm. want them in new facilities. I want them to have this, that, and the other. Do we need more mental health stuff? Yes. Do we need all of that? Yes. But while we work on that, I'm like, why not give them the new prisons? And yes, it was a financial boondockle, but it's financial boondockles for everybody else. Why not let it be a financial boondockle for these people? So just tell me, what what am I missing when I when I? No, I hear everything that you're saying, and I certainly do not want people to live in squalor. Um, The prisons are in terrible shape. Um, I think that the prisons, there are going to be new prisons. Like there's no way around it. Ivy has already committed um, $400 million of our COVID relief money to the new prisons. Um, They're coming regardless of what I say or what ACLU says or what Alabama Appleseed or any of these other organizations that are advocating against the prisons. For me... I think that the root problems in our prison system are not the facilities themselves. I think it's the culture inside the prisons, the indifference to people that are in there, and the corruption within the staff of the prison system. 
um, you know, all of the prisons are awash in drugs. And those are not coming in through visitors. They are coming in through corrupt staff. And until we really focus our efforts on rooting out some of those people and changing the culture within the prisons, I think building a new prison will happen, but we're going to be transferring a lot of the same problems that we have into these fancy new buildings. I also think, Iva, that um, part of the reason that our prisons have been in crisis really since their inception Mm -hmm. after the Civil War is that we have put too many people in there for too long. And so I think a lot of folks that are affiliated with advocacy groups like myself feel like if we build it, they're going to put people in there. And there's no incentive to start to um, look at second chance sentencing, reducing sentences, giving second chances if you've got to fill up all these new beds. So that's part of the drive, I think, to advocate for other solutions outside of building new prisons. None of us want to see people living in terrible conditions. Um, you know, but I think that the solutions can come without spending all of that money on new buildings. They could renovate the facilities that they have. They're just choosing not to. If you look at the spending that's taking place by the Alabama Department of Corrections, they awarded a contract today for $1.6 million to a marketing company in Birmingham. I won't say what marketing company it is, but they're paying them for crisis communications that would pay for a lot of officers, $1.6 million. So some of the decisions that they're making with how they spend taxpayer money, I think, are terrible decisions. That's a small example. Um, I think that the resources could be put in mental health services, in rehabilitation services, in renovating the existing facilities, and in creating pathways to get people out of prison. And that's where our leaders are not interested. And so that's what I've been trying to amplify is we have so many people in our prisons that don't need to be there. They just absolutely are being warehoused. There's no payoff for us as free people. There's no like benefit to society. They, They have these astronomical sentences. They're not a risk to society anymore. We're just keeping them in there to keep them in there. So, um, Maybe that's what um, a little bit about where I'm coming from. I also have deep distrust of the system from covering this agency for a decade now. It's the largest law enforcement agency in the state, and I don't believe anything they say. Well, as you started it, um, you know, okay, I won. I got the new facilities. And so it that makes it more incumbent upon me to fight for your what you just said just now because you are 100% right and I've all I've I've always hoped that I've made sure that it was clear and I wanted you to say it right here with your own voice because yes we need all of those things I have a friend Bethany Owens and you know she is has been really engaged with that whole thing as have a lot of people that don't even have friends and family Mm -hmm. in prison you know just having some level of you know we're we're putting people in prison that need to have mental health 
um, support. So, Absolutely. You know, I, I I couldn't agree more with everything you just said, but I just I just really wanted to see those old crappy buildings, you know, uh, torn down and and giving these people something um, more modern. So anyway, um, let's take a quick break break to pay the bills. And then when we come back, we're going to play some this or that. And then we're going to get right back into this and, and expound on it a little more and go a little deeper. Okay, great. Hello, this is Jefferson County Sheriff Mark Petway, inviting you to join the conversation that we've started around bridging the gap to build communities that are safe and well-connected. Let's all work together to ensure that Jefferson County is a safe place for all who call it home. Okay, Beth, now we're going to do some this or that questions. What is your favorite charity, first of all? The Offender Alumni Association. Offender, all right. Um, and I love them. Um, a good friend of mine, Stephanie, mm-hmm. works with them. Uh, shout out to her and her mom. All right, now, so if you don't answer one of these questions, you have to make a $100 donation so this, that makes you answer the question. Okay. All right. We're going to start with Railroad Park or the Botanical Gardens? Botanical Gardens. Okay. And these are all going to be Birmingham-centric. You know what I'm saying? And so you just choose one or the other. Okay. I don't know. All right. Protective Stadium or Legacy Arena? Protective Stadium. Okay. Um, Rickwood Field or Regions? Regions. Okay. Owls or or Purple Onion? Owls. All right. Sloss Furnace or Vulcan Park? Sloss Furnace. Alabama Theater or Lyric Theater? Lyric Theater. Lakeview or Downtown? Downtown. Dread River Distillery or Good People Brewery? Good People Brewery. Okay. Birmingham Zoo or McWayne Science Center? Birmingham Zoo. All right. Prince or Michael Jackson? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I knew that. That is hard. Yeah. Michael Jackson. Yeah. But I hate that you made me choose. Biggie or Tupac? Tupac. Alabama or Auburn? Honestly, I could care less. I like that answer. <laughs> I really don't care. I'm like the Switzerland I of, love the, it. of the Iron Bowl rivalry. It. I love it. I went to, to have Auburn. an Auburn grad just want to play Switzerland is a win for me. <laughs> we'll leave it there. I mean, I honestly, I don't care about football. Yeah. So I have um, watched Iron Bowls and been excited when Auburn has done well. I will mm-hmm. admit that. Okay. Okay. But now, I, what is your sport? What? What's baseball. your baseball? Who's your team? Red Sox. No. Sorry, I lived in Boston for five years. Let me tell you. Um, I was there with Big Poppy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they won the World Series two weeks before I gave birth to my daughter. 
So I'm like forever a fan. And I, I lived you. in the city when they won the World Series. So um, it wasn't when they broke the streak. That was in 2003. And yeah. I wasn't there yet. But 2007, it was amazing. Well, I was there, I think, around um, 98, 99, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And it was while I was working with Delta Airlines. And they moved me there. And I lived downtown in, I think it was North the north the side. north end north end mm-hmm. right and where I all lived, the italian restaurants that's are what i yeah. was about to say i lived in this italian neighborhood and they were so racist oh yeah and i hated i i really hate boston isn't it interesting how <laughs> it's more like, racist there than here you're I mean, right well it's totally balkanized it's like mm-hmm. there are no um mixed neighborhoods i mean mm-hmm. you've got South Southie, South Boston, it's all white Irish people. Mm-hmm. You've got Dorchester, it's all the black folks mm-hmm. from like the islands, right. you know, that live in Boston. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, I encountered so much racism there that it stunned me. I was not prepared for the mindset that's there. People have this idea that Boston is this cosmopolitan city, and it is, but it's also got this deeply rooted racism and also regionalism. They think they're so fantastic. And I had so many people say disparaging things about the South to me. And I'm like, you know, that is just as bigoted and ignorant to make a generalization about an entire part of the country as what you think people in the South are saying. And I'm a black man with this Southern drawl, you know, and... You know, you 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 say to yourself, um, you know, I, I used to say to myself, you know, I've had I've been called the N word, but it was um, I won't even go into all of that. Mm-hmm. But it was never threatening. I, I never felt threatened. And to be called that and, you know, if you say something, you're going to get your butt whooped. It it was racism. And then I was intimidated on top of that, wow. which made it terrible and then all of my roommates were white women mm-hmm. so i'm hanging out with them going to white bars getting more racism i literally put in a transfer within like 4 or 5 days stay had to stay there a whole month it was like one of the most miserable times of my life that is terrible i am so I am sorry still, you had that experience yeah and like any time and the craziest thing was one of my uh, closest friends kevin lee was playing for the patriots at the time and so it was like we kept miss, missing each other and everything and i had some people that i could have gotten with but just because of schedule. It, and it was just, it was terrible. And so now any team that plays for Boston, mm-hmm. I cheer against them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I it is see just why. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I but, can see why. You know, I'm well, my gonna... husband hates Tom Brady. So, you know, he hated the Patriots just because he despises <laughs> Tom Brady. Um, he's like an Oakland Raiders fan. So really? um, that's why he hates Brady. But um, the Red Sox, we kind of fell in love with because we lived near Fenway because they won the World Series, you know, right when we had moved there and we were starting our family. And um, if you go to Fenway Park and watch a game, you get kind of like swept up into it. We were there when there was like a really great team with Big Poppy kind of yeah. like leading them. Um, but you're right. And there's so much tradition. There you know, is. Like yeah. I'm a I'm a I'm a Yankees fan. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So mm. that, that's that's another reason. I hear. Mm. 
<laughs> you know, I think it was it was interesting for me being a Birmingham native, living in Boston, because um, Birmingham has this stigma, and people that are not from here, they hear Birmingham, Alabama, right. and they right. imagine the fire hoses, the police dogs, and all of that. And Boston doesn't have that legacy, but if you know about the history of Boston and the forced busing and the riots in Southie and the white parents that spit at the black kids and the violence that came out from all that, it was, it was, you know, it was pretty epically awful up there for a long time. And, um, you know, a lot of the native Bostonians don't want to talk about that and don't really want to own that. You know, it's much easier for them to see themselves as like the center of the world and look down on the South. Right. And, um, you know, that's just not right. And, you know, to stay on a theme, unfortunately, going all the way back to, you know, one of the reasons you're an advocate, um, you know, there's so much racism in our prison system. And that's another motivation for your work. What are you working on right now? I actually just published a story today in Facing South, which is a a publication from the University of North Carolina about um, the long legacy of the Alabama prison system obstructing people's right to read while they're locked up. And so, um, you know, we hear a lot about the like violence and the stabbings and overdoses and all this just like epically violent stuff that's going on, but the everyday ins and outs are very difficult for people too. And that includes access to books and magazines and, you know, just basic reading material, the literacy rate. So I, um, I've talked to a lot of people in the prison system for many years and um, based this story on the experiences of two men. One is white, one is black. They've both spent their entire adult lives in prison. They committed crimes when they were teenagers and they're in their 40s and 50s now. But um, just this ongoing struggle with the bureaucracy, with these ridiculous rules that the prisons throw at them, um, and really with this mindset of the prison officials seeing reading as dangerous. And that sort of goes back to the legacy of slavery and how um, slave owners saw reading as dangerous. It's it's a um, means of control. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want your prison population to become too smart. You don't mm-hmm. want them to be too informed. You don't want them to have access to all the information that's out there. And so the, the article kind of traces the um, history of lawsuits surrounding this issue, um, the things that the prison has done, which includes book burnings, Outside the prisons, which includes, um, you know, uh, taking and dismantling entire prison libraries and throwing thousands of books into the dumpsters just because they can. I mean, really mind-blowing stuff that, again, supports my thesis that um, we don't need new prisons to fix this. We need people who have a clue and have some empathy and compassion and are smart about these things are not cruel. That is just, you know, it. so often we say that it's 2022. Are we seriously still, you know, arresting, you know, somebody's ability to read? That is insane. I know. I mean, what 
better way to spend your time if you you commit a crime and you've got to go away right. than than broadening your mind yourself. educating yourself yeah i mean it should be they should have every avenue open for people to access books magazines periodicals whatever they can i think um, and i think that's part of the problem yeah well what can uh other than you know pulling your head out of your butt what can people do to help you and to help the cause? I think that, um, you know, I have so many people ask that and and it's there's no real easy answer. Um, staying dialed in to these issues through the organizations that are working on the issues. And Time that, out right there and shout them out for me real quick. Yeah. And how people can follow them on social media and you. ACLU of Alabama. Mm-hmm. Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, Southern Poverty Law Center, Equal Justice Initiative, um, the Offender Alumni Association. Um, those are, you know, just a couple that come to mind. There's more. Alabama Justice Institute. Um, and I'm on Twitter, um, at B. Shelburne. But I think um, dialing into these issues, paying attention, and letting your lawmakers know that you care about it. Um, there's a consortium of organizations called Alabamians for Fair Justice. Mm -hmm. If you Google that, it'll take you to their landing page, but you can sign up for um, email alerts when there's calls to action, whether it's, you know, signing a letter campaign or showing up for, um, you know, a demonstration. Um, There's really no easy answer. The people that care about this the most are the people that feel like they have no voice. And that is the folks that are impacted by mass incarceration, which is mainly um, black people, poor people, mentally ill people, and people using um, facing substance use issues. You know, that's the majority of the people that are yeah. in our prisons. And so um, I think it takes people like me who I'm not justice involved, mm-hmm. you know, not that I couldn't have been at some point in my life with mm-hmm. all the stupid stuff that I've done, <laughs> right? you know, right. but, you know, I didn't live in an over-policed neighborhood. I kind of like won the lottery on zip code and skin color to mm-hmm. grow up in Birmingham. And thank God I never ended up in jail or prison, but not right. that I couldn't have. Um, but it takes, I think, people like me that can leverage their privilege to get involved in this issue because most of the folks that are impacted are, you know, really living on the edge. I mean, you've got people that are in extreme poverty. They they can't navigate um, the system on how to, like, elevate these issues and get right. people to pay attention. Um, so it's a, it's a blessing to be able to do that for them and with them. Well, I- like we were talking during the break, you know, I have had and still have family and friends who are incarcerated. So, you know, this really struck me um, deeply, but most people don't. And it, and when you don't have someone living in those situations, you can kind of be aloof. If you remember, I was I told you that um, my about my friend Chris, I would I went before the parole board Mm. and the guy I spoke for was literally the last person that is that was released that's been two years ago now Beth I know what's going on with that 
they don't want to let anybody out. They <laughs> they basically they're not letting anybody out. They're basically saying that they're making these judgments based on public safety, but that is not true because the reality is just because you commit a violent crime does not mean you are a violent criminal for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you're actively dangerous for the rest of your life. And so I know people that committed crimes, violent crimes. Some of them committed murders when they were um, in their teens or early 20s, and they've been in prison for 30 years. Exactly. They are no longer a threat. They have been rehabilitated. They're different people now, and the parole board is denying them based on their past. Let's start right there. You know, you and I, we're going to encourage a letter-writing campaign to our state legislators to do something because they're kind of talking about that in the legislature mm -hmm. right now. Yep. Let's encourage everybody to write a letter to your legislator and say that this situation, this this subject matters to you and you want to see people given parole because you can't tell me that in two years nobody has been worthy. I mean, it's, it's really ridiculous. Um, if we say that we are a Christian state and we believe in second chances, you know, Amen. we have to really practice that, you know. Yeah. There was a press conference in Montgomery yesterday about these two bills that are making their way through the legislature to reform the parole board. And if people look at those look up those um, organizations that I mentioned, yeah. um, they can find ways and avenues that they can, um, you know, sort of join the support on those those parole bills. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I, I got calls and all kind of stuff going on in the end, but I want you to come back at some point because I just want you to check in, let us know how we can help you, and just, you know, I just – Love seeing you. Well, thank it's, you. It's just a it's a joy to actually meet you, and um, yeah, we're gonna get you back real soon. I'll come back whenever you want me, and I'll bring more brownies next time. <laughs> yes, some chocolate chip cookies too, maybe. Yes, whatever you like. We want to thank Beth Shelburne for joining the podcast. We want to thank you for listening. And as always, a huge shout out to Creed63 and UrbanHam.com. God bless. Intravenous 205 is here to support all Birmingham businesses and entrepreneurs. If you would like your business featured on Intravenous 205 podcast, please give us a call at 205-202-1602. Or email us at intravenous205 at gmail.com.